Okay, so um, the readings are just at the um, end of the handout sheets. Um, the first reading is Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And then Philippians 4, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, dear, and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, I don't know how you're sort of feeling as more and more sort of opportunities become available as we sort of hopefully start to come out the other end of uh, the pandemic. But something that people have talked about a lot, isn't it, is of life returning to normality or that dreaded phrase, a new normality, a new normal. And yet, what will it look like for us as we actually look to restart life again? I suspect actually for... Most of us, if not all of us, it won't be a case that we can simply just press play after pause having been hit for so long, that actually it'll feel like starting again in many ways. And so our series over the next couple of months is called Live Well. And the idea is to ask of Scripture, where can we find wisdom for actually finding a healthy and sustainable pattern of life to be able to thrive as we come back into more and more sort of normality? And so I've got those two readings there because you'll perhaps have heard that, that first verse there before, that proverb, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. But I don't know about you as you sort of read that, but certainly for me as I look at it, I, I feel like that's one of those things that I read and I think, well, yeah, that's, that's true. And there's a sense in it that that seems helpful uh, and yet dreadfully insufficient because how? Isn't that the important thing about that? Statement: Keep your heart with all vigilance. Yes, but, but how? How do you guard your heart? Which is why we'll look at Philippians 4, perhaps, to find something of an answer to it. First thing I want to show you here is, if you look there with me at verse 1 of Philippians 4, is what do I do when I don't know what to do? Isn't this a source of so much worry, anxiety, and grief for us? When we're confused and we simply don't know what to do, we don't know where to go, we don't know what to think. Perhaps encapsulated in the song by Moby, 
that just repeats over and over, why does my heart feel so bad? Why does my soul feel so bad? How do we guard our hearts? Where do we go when we don't know where to go? Paul starts here for us, therefore, coming out of three chapters of this letter that we won't, you'll be glad, we won't go back over all of that, but three chapters of great doctrine, of great sort of theory and things to now answer the question, well, so what? Of all of that, well, so what? What, what do I do now tomorrow? And it shows us that Paul has not written this letter as some sort of reference book. It's a letter that's always had a point, that's always had a purpose, it's always had a view of what it might be speaking into for its original hearers and for us too. And so maybe it's worth just to sketch that out briefly for us. What was it that Paul was writing to? What was happening for the Philippians here? Where were they tempted to perhaps feel confused, to feel stuck, to feel unsure, and to need to be reminded to stand firm? Well, firstly, we hear about it in in those verses a bit later that there's this conflict between the two women here, Eudia and Syntyche, and that's drawing other people in and dividing people into two sides. But there's also a temptation to drift from the freedom of the gospel of grace into a sort of slavery of performance. There's some who are thinking, well, you know, this message about Jesus saving people is all well and good, but then you also need to actually to be able to do this, do that, not do this, not do that in order to be loved by God. And so there's a need to remind people here to stand firm and to not drift back into that sort of sense of thinking that faith is about trying to extract a blessing from a God who's stingy and doesn't want to, to keeping to grace. But thirdly, there's this temptation in the opposite direction to actually turn life uh, not into a very religious, sort of very disciplined uh, sort of lifestyle, into actually the complete opposite, that everything is actually completely self-seeking. Everything is about my comfort, maximizing my pleasure and enjoyment in life. And so Paul wants to encourage them to do neither extreme, but to trust in Jesus. And he gives four pictures here of the emotion that he feels for these people. It's a letter written for a purpose. There's some actual specific things that he might want to actually speak into, but it's also written out of a genuine love for them. He says here, my brothers, or actually my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. So, and I want to try to give you some practical things as we go throughout this. How do we guard our heart? Well, number one, make life about more than yourself. Guarding your heart is not the same thing as turning in on yourself. And those are two different things. How to guard your heart? Well, firstly, make life about more than yourself. We see Paul doing that here. We see Paul asking them to do it too. He says he loves and he longs for them. And these two things are connected here, that his love is seen in the way that he longs after them. He longs to be with them. He longs for them to do well. How do we guard our heart? Well, here's the second one. Develop tough skin, but keep a soft heart. The problem in life, it seems to be, or at least one of them here on this, is that we do the opposite. If we're to keep a thick skin and a soft heart, we actually very often do the opposite thing, don't we? We have a really thin skin and a really tough heart. We become really sensitive to ourselves 
and yet we can become quite insensitive to others. And you hear people say this, you, you hear people justify it, because they say, no, I, I'm just really sensitive, I'm really ultra-sensitive to these things, and, and actually it's not true, what they are is, they're not sensitive, uh, because that would be feeling it in both directions. If you were really sensitive, you, you would feel it both for yourself and for others, wouldn't it? There'd be that consistency, that's a sensitive person. Someone who just feels it for themselves, they're not sensitive, they're self-absorbed. That's the problem, isn't it? And we all have that. We all have that moment where we can be like that. that we only really see, we only really value our own feelings. And you know, you see it in that somebody else is always in the wrong. Somebody else is always saying sorry to you. You're always right. You're always somehow the victim. Develop a tough skin, but keep a soft heart. He calls them here his joy. He actually finds joy in them. And his crown, they're his prize. He has pride in them. He loves them. He's proud of all their achievements. And we see that throughout other moments of the letter. But now he encourages them here. Stand firm thus in the Lord. The way to guard your heart is by trusting in and looking to God. Stand firm in the Lord. When you don't know what to think or what to do or where to go, look to God to help you stand. And now Paul will show us some, some practical ways of how that happens. But here might be one final one just in this section here, how to guard your heart. Here's another one. Look at Paul here. Think of the way in which Paul has described his work here, the way in which he's described his relationship with them. How to guard your heart. Do what you love. Do what God has made you for. Do what God has called you to do. And have you heard actually praying about that for Elijah, that, that he will come to know that and he will come to do that. If you want to guard your heart, do what you love. Do what you were made to do. Life is too short to waste it in trivial pursuits. Of course, there's always a bit of a journey sometimes, isn't there, in finding what that thing is. There's no shame in that. But do what you love. Do what you're passionate about. Look at that in Paul. And Paul has suffered for this. Right? Paul has been imprisoned, beaten, and everything, and eventually killed for it. And yet, you look at it, and I think if we were to ask him, if we could have him in the room with us, he would say, I wouldn't have chosen it any other way. I wouldn't have done any other thing with my life. I was doing what I was made to do, hard as it may have been at points. I wouldn't do it another way if I could do it again. Do what you love. Firstly, we, we see what to do when we don't know what to do. But secondly, there's this thing of addressing what happens when my unhealth takes a toll. I was listening to a song uh, the other day, 17 Going Under by Sam Fender. He, he sings at one point here. Uh, that's the thing with anger. It begs to stick around so it can fleece you of your beauty and leave you spent with nought to offer. It makes you hurt the ones you love. He's recounting uh, a bust-up that he's had in his teenage years and thinking how much actually that's affected the rest of his life as he's just sort of retained that sort of anger and resentment about that situation you know sometimes there are times where our unhealth takes a toll on others and we see that here in verses two to three you know there's this reality that no person has got everything together no matter how good a performance they might put on nobody has and and also even as a church community together no church has got it all together he hasn't got things going on, even though they might be good. And this is the case for the Philippians. Paul loves this church. He loves these people. You've seen just a snapshot of it there, but there's tons of them throughout the course of the letter where he commends them and praises them for what they're doing. And yet, 
They're not perfect. They're not perfect. And so actually, all the talk here about sort of general well-being and stuff like that and soul care that sort of comes out of this, and the specifics of this spat that we see between these two particular individuals are really linked. Because it's that moment where actually their own ill health has spilt over and is now hurting other people too. Paul says here, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This is a serious fight, by the way. The word that Paul uses here in the original language, the Greek that it's initially written in, describes the sort of paralegal. It, it describes the lawyer who's going up to the, uh, the bench and making an approach for someone, who's entreating on the behalf of a client. He is actually doing this for both women. He's coming before both of them and saying, I'm entreating you both, please, Agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, Paul goes on. He's, he's realizing that this is even beyond him and having to ask for others to help him. I ask you, true companion, help these women. This conflict is now sort of spiraling and drawing more and more people into it as these conflicts have the tendency of doing. And so he asks his true companion, his close, faithful friend, to help him. He's already in the letter referenced Epaphroditus and Timothy, close friends, close workers, trusted uh, leaders within the church, but now doesn't give a name. He's probably talking about Luke, the writer of Luke and Acts, a faithful friend, wise leader to come and to help mediate this conflict. These are women here, verse 3, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, he says. These are women who've been a central part of this church's emergence and life. We read about this in Acts chapter 16, the church coming to life in the midst of a group of faithful women praying. And there's not enough faithful men at this point to even have a synagogue to begin to meet in. But these women are faithfully meeting, are trusting, believing in the Lord Jesus. And Lydia, a successful businessman, sort of becomes the sort of patron of the church, opens up a home to sort of house them. And they've labored side by side together with that group. And yet, now they've fallen out so much. And it goes to show us that no one's immune from this. These were people who you wouldn't have really expected to fall out like this. Not only have they labored side by side here, but Paul tells us here that their names are in the book of life. They're still believers. They're still followers of Jesus, even if they're making a bit of a mess of things just at the minute. Because it's not as if, as Christians, right, we, we become a Christian and then we never struggle again. You need to have a sort of realistic expectation of yourself and of others. That it doesn't quite go like that, does it? But this is a needless conflict. And needless conflicts come from a heart that's not at peace. Because if it were at peace, we wouldn't see it as really being worth it. Getting that final word in wouldn't seem so important if I was really at peace. In that moment, I feel as though I'm only really going to get peace if I can just come out the right end of it. I can just get my word in. If I can just defend myself that bit more. If I can just be seen to be right. And yet, they take casualties, don't they? And here it's dividing this church. And so we should guard our hearts, not just for ourselves, though there'd be plenty of benefit for ourselves in doing so, but for the sake of others. So, one more how to guard your heart here. Fourthly, let it go. In the words of that famous and now annoying song from the film, 
let it go. Thirdly here, verses 4 to 7, we see finding a peace when life gets loud. I used to work in a, in a call centre, uh, and it was really stressful in lots of different ways. One of them was it was really noisy, really hectic. Every single thing that you do is measured to the second. Uh, and so my lunch break, uh, the only thing I could do to try to get some sanity was I was working in, in Bournemouth and there's these really beautiful sort of gardens just in the middle of Bournemouth there and they just sort of go on for ages and ages and there's this uh, nice river that sort of runs through it and everything. It's really, really idyllic. And I would go for sort of half an hour and just sit there and sort of stare into the middle distance and somehow just try to find some quiet to quite literally physically try to find a bit of peace when life was getting loud for me and here Paul shows us how to do this in a much more meaningful and and deep way than what I'm describing for you he says rejoice in the Lord always how to guard your heart well here's a fifth way one way is to actually make a discipline of rejoicing and not moaning There's this weird thing, isn't there, that with kids, we make a discipline of a lot of things, but one of them, surely that's really big, is trying to train them to say thank you, isn't it? To give them those manners. And for a long time, they don't really know why, do they? And and actually, for a long time, they're pretty reluctant, actually, even sometimes to do it. And then even they do a bit, but they don't really know why. It's just because they've been told that's the thing that they do. But what you hope as a parent, as a guardian, uh, is that eventually there'll be this sort of moment where it sort of clicks and they don't just say thank you just because that's what you do, but oh, because I really am thankful and you know somehow something of that thankfulness has got into them eventually and yet we do this odd thing where I think we seem to have lesser hopes and expectations for ourselves and others as adults that things that we would actually make a discipline of for children and then eventually it becomes a natural thing we feel that as as though that as adults oh well that's just being false that's faking it we shouldn't fake it we should only do it if you really mean it No, no. Why can't the same thing be true for us as adults? That we could make a habit of rejoicing. It's not faking it. It's training it. And you'll guard your heart by doing so. You know, if Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God, of knowing him, of following him, and all the promises uh, that we inherit and that we are blessed by because of that is true, that it's like this treasure that you dig up in a field and you're so amazed by it that you think, I've got to quickly cover this over so nobody else finds it. And I've got to go out and find the estate agent and I've got to pay whatever price I've got to pay, sell whatever I need to sell to get that field, to get that treasure If that's what it's really like, if that's really true, then we should rejoice, shouldn't we? And if we're not, it probably diagnoses that there's something a little bit off in our hearts somewhere. He says, verse 5 here, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. See, the way that you view God affects the way that you treat other people. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Are connected might not seem so, but the way that you view God will affect the way that you view and you treat others. So let that reputation that precedes you be that you're easy to deal with, not awkward. 
I'm, I've never particularly got into the Harry Potter series, so I just didn't. Uh, but if you are familiar with Harry Potter and you've read those books, you'll perhaps know an idea that I came across a few weeks ago of the Dementors. Those who come and basically the only thing that they really do is like feed off of like the good feelings, the joy of humans, and replace it with sort of despair and depression. And in life... You'll meet people like that. You'll meet people like that that have a high ticket price on being around. That you come away from being with them and you just feel drained. You just don't really know what's happened to you. You always seem to be draining your energy. And you always seem to leave feeling bad. So the encouragement is don't be one of those. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Don't be anxious about anything. And that might seem really, really unhelpful if you experience anxiety like me. Don't be anxious. Okay, but I am. So what do I do about the fact that I am? I know that I shouldn't. Now I just feel a bit bad that I am and also don't want to be. Don't be anxious about anything. How do I not be anxious? Because I don't want to be. And I'm guessing that you don't want to be either. Well, perhaps the idea here is that you can at least stack the odds, right? So in sport and things, there's this idea of POMO, the position of maximum opportunity. Put yourself in the right place. If you're a football player and you want to score goals, you need to put yourself in the right place. Give yourself a chance. If you're wanting, gentlemen, to encourage uh, that lady to accept your proposal, you can put yourself in the position of maximum opportunity. You know, getting a job, getting things together, getting yourself turned out right, you're gonna put yourself in a position of maximum opportunity. You can stack the odds somewhat, can't you? And that's the thought here. In everything, by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Just ask him. You might have thought that stacking the odds would be something that you would do, but actually, no, it's not. It's turning to him in prayer how to guard your heart here's another way don't sit on things as if just repressing things will make them go away it doesn't does it in a way you don't need me to tell you that but maybe you do need reminding because we all do it don't sit on things just ask we've been going through the summer through the book of the psalms and isn't that a wonderful example of someone actually doing that just being honest honest with the moments of which they're feeling great and honest with the moments of which actually i feel as though the floor is falling through and I don't know how to stop it. And I don't know how it started. And do you see God pushing him away? No. In fact, you see it kept there for us. As an example. To just ask. To just let it out. You know, God has broad shoulders. He has thick skin. But he has a soft heart. He's big enough to take it. And here's the funny thing that we do when we don't tell him. We are sort of imagining that he doesn't already know when he does. It might be better to just air it, because he knows anyway. You, you, you haven't in some ways sort of spared him from getting a bit upset. He's big enough to take it. His skin is thick enough, but his heart is soft enough. But he's not going to turn against you for it. How to guard your heart? Don't sit on things. Verse 7 here, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How to guard your heart? Well, number 7 here, the good news is that actually God guards your heart. 
And so many of you who have been following Jesus will know that, will know that in life, will know times at which that's happened, which he has held you up. And sometimes you can only really see that when you look back behind on something. At the time, it's not so easy. But you can look back to the most devastating of moments and say, you know what, if it were not for God holding me up, I couldn't have got through. And yet, I did. And there's something about that that I can't do justice to in my words, so I'm just praying, really, that the Spirit of God would bring that to mind in in your hearts and in your lives, because, as it says here, it, it surpasses understanding, and it surpasses my capabilities of language. But God's peace will guard your heart. And then lastly, here, look at verses 8 to 9 with me. It's about looking for help in the right places. You know, we all have times uh, where our heart wavers and where it wanders. So where do we look when we need help? Where do we go? Well, Paul gives us here this list, doesn't he, of seven things to look up to and allow to shape our thoughts and our hearts. Look at verse 8 there with me. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. How to guard your heart? Well, watch your diet. Be careful about what it is that you're taking on board. And the idea that Paul is coming to us with here is about, he's actually borrowing a phrase from kind of contemporary literature at the time. Um, And what he's saying is, look, if there is anything in the world, not just here in Scripture, but anything in the world that is pure, that has some element of uh, usefulness to it, of truth to it, of helpfulness, anything that's commendable, anything that's lovely, pull them out. Use those. Think on those things. Of all the things that amass around you and surround you, reflect on the things that are useful, that are good, that are helpful, that lead you to peace. Think about those things. Give value to those things. See them as important. It's about learning to filter stuff, isn't it? So how to guard your heart is another practical thing. Find and invest in people who will point you that way, even when you might not want to hear it. That's the value of us doing a thing like DNA groups, of groups of three or four meeting together and doing that in everyday life, of helping one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on, even when you actually might not like to hear it at first. How to guard your heart? Well, here's one last one here. Look up from your scars. We all have scars in life, don't we? Things that have happened that if we had written our story ourselves, we would certainly not include. Things that shape us. And the temptation is to let them define and narrate the rest of your story, isn't it? For example, if you've been hurt by having been abandoned or betrayed, it would be very easy for that to be a thing that keeps shaping the story and the trajectory of your life. For that wound to keep you in a sort of fear, in a sense that the people around you are always just a moment away from leaving you again, which leaves you afraid to open up, maybe, because you don't want to be hurt. Or maybe 
pretending to push people away because somehow it's easier for me to push people than to watch them leave. We all have wounds like that. They all leave scars. But we need to take our eyes off our wounds inflicted on us and instead look to Christ who was wounded for us. Paul encourages them now, lastly, by, uh, to look back to all that he has previously shown them and shared with them. He says, verse 9 here, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The gospel, following Jesus, is a way of life that's to affect everything that we do, everything that we say. The gospel should be seen You've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you, he tells us. Look to all that you've learned and you've received of God in scripture and and God will be with you. And he is a God of peace. If he's with you, you'll know because he'll bring peace with him. How does he do that? How does Jesus do that? Because that's what Paul is saying here. Well, look at just a couple of incidents from the Gospels here that his closest friends record of him here. Jesus healing a leper who comes to him and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus simply responding, I will be clean. Or a woman approaching him who had spent years unwell, suffering under uh, bad doctors who hadn't helped, had only made things worse. And Jesus healing her and simply saying, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Or a demon-possessed boy that... Jesus frees, has compassion upon, to actually know life in its fullness. All of these and so many more stories, of course, serve to exemplify everything that Jesus said he would do being done. That he's a God of peace. And Jesus himself says of himself here in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Look to him. You know what the really good news is? That there's one who loves you so much more than you could ever possibly imagine. One who knows you, and who's made you with all your quirks, and who loves you, and even likes you, and wants to be around you, and he loves you so much, he would even die for you. And if you didn't already know that, or if you needed reminding, I pray that you will know that. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, sing a closing song together. Again, we stand and lift up our hands. I'll pray just before we do that. Father God, I thank you for your love and your grace towards us. Lord, for many of us, maybe even before COVID happened, but certainly with COVID and all the different challenges and strains and struggles of the last sort of 18 months, um, maybe we can identify with that song at the beginning, why does my heart feel so bad? Why does my soul feel so bad? Maybe we know all too well what it's like to cry out those words. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you bring your word alive in our hearts. And Lord, all that we've thought about of guarding our hearts, of us being held by you and being able to live and to flourish out in the world, and especially as we come back to more and more life. 
Holy Spirit, I ask that you might work within us to know your love and your grace and your care, your peace for us. Lord, for each and every one of us, whatever we may be going through, whatever our story might sort of be at the minute, whatever kind of a time we've been having, Lord, I pray that we might know, not just as a sort of concept, but we might really know and experience your peace that surpasses understanding. We thank you that we can look to you such a good and loving Heavenly Father. And for those who don't know that yet, or who maybe are doubting that, I just pray that you would do what my words aren't really quite capable of doing, uh, in, in letting them know that they are loved so, so much by you, enough to give your life for us, that you might give us life in all its fullness. And so Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of that this morning and pray you would work that within us and that, Lord, we might be able to encourage and bless and support one another, be helpful, encouraging, loving, gracious, peace-filled friends to those you've put us around this coming week. For your glory and for our good, we ask it. Amen.